Well, amen, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat and grab a Bible. Um, turn with me, grab that Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going to continue on our Acts series. We're going to start in verse 11, all right? Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Let me read it to you while you find your way there. While he clung to Peter, if you remember he last week, that was the paralyzed man that was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. By the way, I think it's fascinating that two weeks earlier, Peter himself our couple couple weeks, 50-something days earlier, Peter himself is denying Jesus, and look at his boldness now. To this, he says, we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. That time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise him up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in his, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Did you know that the the captain of the Titanic was actually warned by radio that there was a massive iceberg just up ahead of him. I quote to you, here's what he said, shut up, shut up, you are jamming up my line and I am trying to work. One of the most prideful and devastating statements of all time, so many lives could have been said if he, saved if he just humbled himself for a moment to listen to the voice of reason around him. How many people in the history of the world do you think would say the same exact thing? Man, if I could just have a do-over, right? If I could just get a mulligan on that one and go back, I'm just telling you I would do that differently. This illustrates a profound truth that's in the Bible, but it's still relevant today. The voices that you allow to speak into your life shape who you are. 
They can have devastating impacts on you and the people around you, or they can change you for the better. Matter of fact, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, says it like this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Maybe you come here today and and the check engine light's on. You know what I'm saying? You need, to, you need to pop the hood of your life, and you need to do a little examining. You need to ask yourself, who are the loudest voices in your life? When, when that voice of reason, like Peter, to the religious people begin to speak, do you have ears to hear it? Are you willing to listen? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. And statistically speaking, let me just ask you, do you even have a friend? I heard it said the other day that a friend, a real friend, is somebody who has the authority and the proximity to actually speak a rebuke into your life and you're willing to listen to it. I'm not talking about people that you just say hi or what's up or text every now and then to, but do you have a friend who has the ability, the authority, and the proximity to be like, bro, that ain't good. Who has the loudest voice in your life? Do you know who you speak to the most? yourself. What do you say to yourself? In those moments where, where nobody is talking, but you're talking to yourself and you're rehearsing the identities over yourself that you believe about yourself, what do you say? Do you say, shut up, shut up. I'm trying to work here. I want to look at that. I don't care that I know that it's wrong what I just said to my spouse. I'm going to do it anyway. So you quench that. Here's a truism for you. Whatever you put into your mind is going to come out. If you fill your mind with the gospel and you surround yourself with people who have the authority and the ability to speak truth into your life, you're actually going to become a much better person. If you don't, well, it's going to shape you for the worst. So today, I want to give you, and this is going to be a pretty clear outline, I want, to, I want to first show you how to properly receive praise that will set you up for a healthy life according to this passage. Then I'm going to show you eight attributes about Jesus that will ground you in the gospel, and then we're going to end by looking at the way to experience healthy life change, okay? You ready? Look at verse 11 again. While he, again, remember that he was the lame man that had received the miracle of the very first church, while he clung to Peter and John, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though it's by our own piety and power that, you, that we have made him walk? Peter walked up to this paralyzed guy, and he healed him. And again, I, 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 if you remember back last week, this paralyzed man is sitting outside of the temple, and for three times a day, the Jewish elites would walk right past him, and in a very moment, Peter tells him, I don't have money for you, but what I have for you is much better than money. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he gets up, and he literally joy, goes into the temple, and people are like, that's that brother that was out there. Like they're utterly, the Bible says, utterly astounded, like jaw dropped, dumbfounded, looking at this guy who had just been sitting there paralyzed on the ground. And the Bible says from birth, which means that he had, he had been that way his entire life. He's walking into the temple. You know, I don't know if you get this, but can you imagine what that's like? 
You know, when we first started this church, we've been doing this for about five years, five and a half years now, so I feel like I can tell some stories. Um, when we first started this church, we had a guy that was attending our church that was um, blind, completely blind. He had a seeing eye dog named Nathan, who was the worst seeing eye dog in the history of seeing eye dogs ever. And no, Rainey's not nodding her head. One day, one day I'm picking this dude up on Highway 9 at the Firehouse Subs right down here to come to church. And I walk into the Firehouse Subs, and Nathan is up on the table eating somebody's sandwich, okay, as they're like sitting back here. And I looked at the dude, and I was like, hey, bro, you might want to get your dog. And as loud as possible, he says, it doesn't matter. I'm blind. What are they going to say to me? I'm like, we got to get out of here as quickly as we can, okay? And when I, like, well, I, look, look, I, I love this guy, but when I say he was blind, I'm talking like one day we're walking into the church, and I'm, he's like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. I was like, all right, let, let me take you where you need to go, and um, I'm like, do you need any help? He's like, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. So I'm standing over here, and I turn around, and he's going on the wall, like blind, blind, right? Imagine, imagine you showed up to church, and he compliments you on your dress. He's like, man, that color looks really good on you. And he's like, I love the graphics in here and the lighting. You'd be like, what? Like just last week, you can't see anything. What? How? You'd be utter, like jaw dropped, utterly astounded. Like don't miss the miracle. Okay, it's not like somebody just showed up and you never saw, no, you knew this guy. He was attending here and the miracle of, of that moment hit him and, and it would hit you in like something happened. That's what's going on here. See, you would have been utterly astounded. The problem is, the problem is you would probably be utterly astounded at the wrong thing just like they were. Look at it. When Peter saw them, he addressed them, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? See what they're astounded at? Why do you stare at us? As though it was by our piety or power that, you, that we have made him walk. They're amazed at Peter and John, as if Peter and John had anything to do with this miracle. Here's the first lesson that I want to give you in receiving healthy praise. You ready for it? It's not about you. It's not about you. You see, people wanted to cling to Peter and John, but Peter and John wanted to cling to Jesus. Peter knew that the power or the piety that made this guy walk was not him. He was a conduit of the power of God. Now, I, I, you, you know that, that, that this happens all the time, and I was, I was reflecting on this this week, and here, here's a question that I asked God, Okay. I asked him really this. Number one, would I do that? Or would I be a glory thief? Number two, have I done anything in my life worthy of people clinging to me? Like, do I have the bold, audacious faith to make a proclamation for your glory that people would actually look at me and think, man, like that guy is crazy awesome. That was convicting for me. I was like, dude, or, or am I just kind of going through the motions of life? Here's what I'm telling you. One day when I get to the end and you get to the end, I don't want anybody to be like, dude, he was amazing. I want everybody to be like, his God was amazing. I tell my kids this all the time. Some of you know this. I'm, I'm one of 13 kids, okay? That's true. And I have one full biological brother. We have drug addiction in my family. We have abuse in my family. We have a family tree that is messy. And I tell my kids this. 
one day, your great-great-grandchildren are going to do some DNA test on Ancestry.com or whatever, and they're going to see that the, the, the split in the tree happened here. That some reason, the branches changed. And all the mess over here turned into flourishing over here. And one day, they're not going to say it was because your great-great-great-grandfather. They're going to say because your great-great-great-great God changed the fabric of your lineage. What are they going to say about you? Are they going to cling to you or are they going to cling to Jesus? Y'all, there's nothing more significant than being known by God and making him known. There's nothing more impactful than fulfilling what God has given you and having people look to King Jesus. So let me just ask you a question. Write it down and ponder it. Does your life reflect God's glory or do you absorb it yourself? That's one of the most profound questions you can ask yourself. Are you a glory thief? When people ask you about the success that you've achieved, do you point them to the goodness of God or do you talk about the things that you've done, the school that you went to, the way that you worked hard and the opportunities that you've had? Y'all, don't get me wrong. All those things matter and hard work pays off and it's really important. But at the end of the day, are you receiving the glory or are you telling people, no, I'm not a self-made man because that's not possible. I'm a steward of God's grace. You are a product of all those things, but you're also on a product of the environment that you live in, the family origin that you have, where you are born. Guys, if this hasn't struck you this week, let me just make it really clear. And I tell this to my kids all the time. Emma, my oldest daughter, she asked me, has there ever been a war in America? I'm like, no, baby, you live in the safest place in the world. You have nothing to worry about. Imagine living on the Gaza Strip right now. You are a product of so much more than you recognize, and it's all a gift from God. See, the difference between someone who is content and able to steward God's grace is the recognition that everything you have is a gift from God. So you give credit to him. Peter knew this. Peter knew that everything that he had was a gift from God, and the quicker you realize that, the more settled your life will be too. Peter makes it all about Jesus. The thing that healed the man is the only thing that will heal you too. It is not somebody's power. It is God's power made forth through the gospel. Here's a big idea. Peter is about to tell you that the power to heal comes from Jesus. Do you have the ears to hear that? Let me give you eight attributes from this text about Jesus that will shape the way that you view the gospel. I'm going to read it in a big section, and then we're going to break it apart. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Did you know that that word repent, metanoia, it doesn't mean to ask for forgiveness. It literally means to make a decision to turn away from something and to live for something else. I think one of the greatest myths in American Christianity is the way you go to heaven is you pray a prayer. It's not it. 
It's to follow Jesus, which means that you literally, according to Jesus, die to yourself and live to him. So he says, repent, therefore turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him, also proclaiming these days, you are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Eight characteristics of Jesus. Number one is this, God's, Jesus is God's servant. You see it right there in verse 13. He is God's servant. Now what's fascinating about this word servant here is not the word doulos that you often see as servant or slave. It's a different word that Peter decides to use here, and it's pas, which literally means to be a, a slave or a servant or a, a child servant that suffers. He is the suffering servant. That's what's so important. God glorified Jesus through his suffering, through his death, right? John 15 says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. If you're gonna get the gospel, you have to start with this. The way that God glorified himself was through the suffering of his son. Now here's the big question, why? Why? Why did Jesus have to suffer in order to save the world? Remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world or cosmos that he gave, he gave his only son. Think about the economy of God's grace. This is how God won the entire world was by dying for them. Philippians 2 says it this way, that he humbled himself. Jesus put on humanity and humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, that he might be highly exalted. If you didn't know this, Philippians chapter two is what they call a great Christological hymn, meaning this, Paul didn't write it. It was what the early church spoke all the time. It predated Paul's writing of Philippians chapter two. And what they're telling you is this was the great creed of the church. They knew this. Jesus was the servant of God who accomplished the mission of God to die in our place. He stood in the gap of sin and death. He did what nobody else in the history of the world could do. He lived a perfect life. Think about that. Chew on that for a moment. He lived a perfect life, meaning he is the only truly innocent one that has ever lived, which means he died an undeserved death. And then he rose from the dead in order to pay the penalty for all of our sins and unite us back to God. So Jesus's account of righteousness can be fully credited to you on your behalf. See, every religion in the world and every single powerful leader in the world ever has been about their own power and authority. And yet Jesus was a humble servant by the way, the thing that should make Christianity different, remember, remember what Paul said 
emulate me as I emulate Christ, it should be servant leadership. When you and I are about power grabs and authority, we speak the same religion as every other religion and culture in the world by how we live. When we take off, if you will, our authority and power and we wash the feet of one another and we care about one another and we love our enemies, do you realize that Jesus was the only person in human history up until that point to ever make that declaration to love your enemies? And we do that. And I'm telling you, that's not easy. That's where real change happens. I think we got to recapture that moment. The, the same moment that the early church had that changed the world was that they loved. They loved. I'm telling you, there's nothing more attractive than when people of power lay aside their power in order to serve and not be served. That's what Jesus did. He stepped off of his throne. In case you didn't know this, he didn't have to do that. He is every bit as much God if he doesn't do that. But he did. He stepped off his throne, he came down, he literally served the same creation that he created. The creator served his creation in order to save us. Jesus was the servant of God that died in your place. Now, how did he do it? That's number two. He did it because he, the holy and righteous one, it says. Watch this, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted for you. Holy, holy means set apart. Righteous means to be right in front of God. You, you ever notice that nobody in the world, nobody, hates when you talk about God? You ever notice that? But you throw the name Jesus out there, he is the most controversial figure on the planet. Why? Can I tell you why? God's not offensive. Jesus is offensive because Jesus, number one, is exclusive let me just say this, though. He's the most inclusive exclusivity that's ever existed. All people can come to him, but you can only come to him. That's offensive. Number two, you got to be humble to receive him. Think about it. The only way that you receive the gospel is by grace. You can't earn it. Your good works are not good enough. You have to literally step off of your throne and let him occupy it. And you have to do it by admitting that you can't save yourself. That is the most challenging thing for anybody in the world to do, is to not be their own savior. It's offensive. But here's what he is. He's the holy and righteous one. See, he's holy, set apart, and he's righteous because he's right before God. Jesus became fully God, and uh, Jesus was fully God, is fully God, and fully man. He put on humi humility and humanity in order to die in your place. He was the perfect one, never sinned, never messed up, did absolutely everything right. And that's super important because if he did anything wrong, he could not have been your savior. Imagine this. Imagine that... Um, it's my anniversary with my wife, and I walk up to her, and I give her this card, and I write all this beautiful stuff out, and I hand it to her, and I say, sweetheart, we've been together a long time. I think we've been together now 16 years, and I'm like, I love you so much. I love you so much that over the course of our relationship, I have been 99% faithful to you. She'd be like, oh, you're so amazing. Thank you. I was like, I know there's been a couple times, but listen, I've been 99% faithful. You know what she'd do? 
She would murder me. <laughs> Why? Because 99% faithful is 100% unfaithful. Right? You ever think about it like that? You break one law, you've broken them all. If Jesus had messed up at all, he's completely unfaithful. And if he's completely unfaithful, then he can only pay the penalty for his own sins. But he was 100% faithful, completely faithful and righteous. And because he was completely faithful and righteous, he could be the holy one. He could stand in your place. He could be righteous. He could do what you could not do yourself. See, that robs you of your own self-righteousness. That's hard, y'all. Like, we want to stand on the pedestal of our good works, don't we? You know how we do it? I'm better than that guy. Why is that guy always Hitler? Oh, yeah, the, good job. You're better than that guy. Of course you are. Like, if you're not, we got a problem. <laughs> big, big, big problem. But that's the reality is, is we always compare we put ourselves up against one another. Why? Because we're inflating our own ego. Because we're believing the lie that I can do it myself. See, the only thing it takes to receive Jesus is the humility to say, I'm not good enough. And that's offensive. Listen to me. The next time you say that there's another way to heaven, even if it's your good works, let me just tell you what you're doing. You are robbing Jesus of the cross and you're being offensive to God. Why? Because if there were any other way to heaven, Jesus' death would be unnecessary. And the worst thing you could ever do is tell anybody about Jesus' death if there's any other way to heaven. Think about it. You have drastically decreased somebody's odds of going to heaven if you tell them about Jesus if there's any other way. All roads don't lead to God. Coexist is not true. And what I think is fascinating is if you ask any of those religions on the coexist bumper sticker, not just Christianity, they would all agree with me. Ask a Muslim imam. Ask a rabbi. Right? Ask a Hindu. They will all tell you, that, that ain't true. That, that, that way doesn't get to God. All roads don't lead there. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does because he has absorbed the penalty on your behalf. The reality is that Jesus is righteous and holy, and we are not. You want to talk about humility? Sit in that fact for just a moment. Listen to that voice for just a moment. I'm telling you, if you do, you will not waste this precious life on anything less significant than what Jesus has done for you. Number three, he is the author of life. Verse 15, and you killed, they said, the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. You see it now? You see why? See why he's the author of life? He's the author of life because he died in your place. He's the author of life because the one that spoke life into you, that breathed life into you, died so that you could live again. The, the theological term for this is called glorification. By his raising from the dead, watch this, he positionally went to a different place. 
Okay, Jesus positionally became into power after he rose from the dead. Philippians 2, again, it says it like this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That means after he rose from the dead, he was exalted to another place. He highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the knee, at, the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, let me just say this really quickly. Everybody's going to bow before Jesus one day. The question is, do you want to do it now and get salvation that leads to life, or do you want to wait? Because one day, one way or another, we're all going to bow before Jesus. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he positionally changed who he is. He killed death and became the author of life in a significant way. When you sin, by the way, you died. Ephesians 1 says it that way. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. This took me a long time to understand this. Genesis chapter 3, when God told them, when you eat or if you eat from the tree of life, you will die. I was, before, I was like, well, they didn't die. Adam and Eve surely didn't. Like, they, they ate and they kept going. No, they did die. They, they, they eventually died physically, but they died spiritually at that very moment. They were separated from the author of life. The, the thing that actually brings them joy and fulfillment is Jesus. And in that moment, they died, but God raised him up. God raised him up. Listen to me, I, I know. I know that some of you have some deep questions, especially this week with everything going on. Like, you should have deep questions. Well, if God, if you're good and you raised from the dead and you're going to fix this world, like J.R.R. Tolkien said, you're going to make all the sad things become untrue. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Great question. Great question. Here, here's the only thing I want to ask you. Would you be willing to just put that aside for just a second and ask a different question first? Here's the question you got to ask first. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, that actually redefines every other question. And it, and it does answer those, those really difficult questions. Here's what it tells you. You might not know the why to those questions right now, but what you do know is the answer. That Jesus rose from the dead so that he could put death to death, and one day he is going to come. You see, the Lamb of God that was slain one day will come back as the Lion of Judah, and he will slay evil once and for all, and he will fix all this stuff. It's like this. It's like when my daughter, my, my ten, almost 10-year-old daughter, when she had to have surgery, do you know how futile it was to try to explain to her, sweetheart, I need to sit you down. We're going to give you a shot. They're going to put you to sleep. And then some guy that you don't know, some stranger is going to cut you. And you're going to hurt for a couple weeks afterwards, but don't worry, it's going to be okay. Her little mind has no category for that. She doesn't understand that. What she does understand is she can trust her daddy, who has proven over and over and over again that even when she doesn't have the category to understand that I love her and I would never harm her. That's what the gospel does for you. Your God can look at you and say, hey, listen, I know it doesn't make sense. It's not going to make sense. Your mind can't compute this. But what I'm telling you is that I sent the Savior of the world, my son, my one and only son, to die in your place. And he rose from the dead. And I've proven over and over and over again, like we just sung about, that I love you. And when it doesn't make sense and you don't have the answers, here's all I want you to do is trust your daddy who has all the answers. And I promise you one day it's going to work out. He's the author of life. Number four, he's the object of our faith. Look at verse 16. 
in his name, by faith in his name, has made the man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Did you know that faith does not save you? Did you know that? Faith does not save you. Matter of fact, if we all got up right now and did a, a quick field trip to the tallest building in Alpharetta, and I told you to jump off and have faith that you're going to fly, you're not going to fly. I don't care how much faith you have. You're not going to fly. Faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. It's what you put your faith in. I heard Tim Keller say it this way. He said, if you're falling from a mountain, it doesn't really matter how much you believe that that tree branch is going to save you, how much faith you have. The question isn't if you have faith. The question is, is that branch strong enough to actually hold you? That's the question for Christianity, right? The same thing is true. It's not that you just have faith. You have to have faith in his name, his name. Yeah, again, I've told you this. Imagine Imagine, you know, 12 years ago when Allison and I got married, the, the doors open, she walks down. It's the most beautiful person I've ever seen on the planet. Now imagine if when we got down there, we, we just kind of said a couple happy words and walked out. No, that's not what happened. What happened was at the very end of that, after the pastor said a bunch of stuff that nobody ever remembers, he says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then he says, Mr. and Mrs. William Alexander Lowe. If that just aha moment, my name's not Billy, it's William. So there you go. And we walk out. What happens? In that very moment, she received my name, which meant that she received everything that belonged to me, poor girl, and I received everything that belonged to her. We're united, and we have the same name. Now, imagine that she left there, and she decided to go do something else, and, and she acted as if we didn't have the same name. She meets another guy, does, you know, whatever, and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's not having trust in my name. By the way, when the Bible, there's a commandment when it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, just so you know, he's not talking about saying GD. He's saying, don't receive the name of God in Christ and then act like you don't have it. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. How many cultural Christians need to repent of that one? You're saved by his name because when you receive his name, you're adopted into his family. You become one with him, which means that you get the birthright and the inheritance of everything that is his is now yours. What's his? Eternity. What's yours? Eternity. See how it works. You are saved by his name. And by his name, you become a part of the family. Salvation is through faith in his name. He has to be the object of your faith. Can I just tell you, Peter wants you to know that it's not about him. It's all about Jesus. Jesus does it all. He did it all, and he's going to continue to do it all. And you have to understand that your salvation and your life is found in him. But that takes humility. That's the key. Number five. Number five, he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Look at it, verse 17. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance. By the way, how much grace is that? You ever think about what Peter's doing? These people just killed the Savior of the world. How much grace? As did your rulers. And what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer and die has thus been fulfilled. Did you know that there's over 300 direct prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled? When Jesus spoke, 
He's fulfilling prophecies. When the, when the prophets spoke, they're talking about Jesus. The entire thing is about Jesus. This is why your Old Testament matters. Like, you can't know Jesus without knowing the Old Testament. Some people are just, some people say, I hear it, just throw out the Old Testament. You don't need it. You can, you can know Jesus. No, you can't, because the entire thing is about him. All of it is about Jesus. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the greater Moses. He is the, pro- the fulfillment of all the prophets and the covenants. He's the son that God promised to David. He is the one that everyone spoke about. In Genesis chapter 3, after they sinned, and he said, I'm going to send somebody who's going to crush the head of Satan. He's talking about Jesus. It's all about him. Which leads to number six. He is the Christ. Look at verse 20. And the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Did you know Jesus? Did you know Christ is not his last name? Hey, did you know when, when Mary and Joseph had a baby, it wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, right? It's a name. It's a title, Christos. It, it literally means the appointed one or the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the appointed one. He is the one that the entire Old Testament is talking about. He is the fulfillment of everything good. Every great act on the planet is about him. You see, when Jesus came and he suffered and died, he did that so that he could rule the world. What the Jews were looking for was somebody to take them out of the alleviation of the Roman occupation. And God's like, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to take the entire world. See, the greatest strength in all the planet was an act of humility. It was meekness. It was servitude. And by his act of servitude and humility, he had had billions of people over the last 2,000 years come to faith. If he would have come in great might and power in that moment, he would have saved the Roman occupation. But he wouldn't have saved the world. So he laid down his power and his authority so that he could become the Christ, the anointed one that would save the entire world. Number seven. Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Moses said it. The Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Do you listen to Jesus and whatever he tells you? And it shall come that every soul that does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. See, Moses was the, great, the first great prophet of the Bible. Matter of fact, it's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's hard to understand the storyline of Jesus without understanding the storyline of Moses. Moses takes the people of Israel, he, he takes them out of slavery, right? He says, let my people go, takes them for 40 years into a desert land, and then he takes them to the promised land. If you actually look at the book of Matthew, the very first temptation of Jesus, Jesus goes with Satan into the wilderness for 40 days to emulate the 40 years in the desert with Moses, except that Jesus does what Moses could never do and what Adam could never do. He actually withstands the temptations of Satan. And so right after that moment, Jesus goes up onto a hill, up onto a mountain, the Mount of Olives, like Moses went up onto the mountain where Moses received the law of God and brought it back down to the people. Jesus delivers the greatest sermon ever told by receiving from God and bringing it back down to the people. And he does what Moses could never do. He takes the people, dies for their sin to deliver them, watch this, to the promised land, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the greater Moses that is coming to deliver you to the promised land. By the way, and I tell you this all the time, the Bible never says that you will die and go to heaven. The Bible says that you will die and heaven will come to you. Heaven is going to come on earth 
as it is in heaven where you will live in a physical body with him forever and ever and ever with no more sin and no more death because Jesus was actually able to do what none of the prophets of the Old Testament could do. Defeat Satan's sin and death in your place. Last one, number eight. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. Verse 25. You are the sons of the prophet and the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See the blessing? To turn you from your ways, repentance, so you can walk with Jesus. If you go back to the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to an old man named Abraham. He's 100 years old, and God says, hey, I'm going to give you a son, and that son's going to have a son, and that son's going to have a son, and that son's going to have a son, and one day all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through that son. So Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac, and then they have a son named Jacob, and they have a son, and they have a son, and they have a son, and then Joseph has a son, and they have a son, and then David is one of those sons, and then Solomon comes after him as one of those sons. And if you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, you can actually retrace the lineage all the way back from Jesus to Abraham, where he is the promised one. Jesus is the point. The promise that God made was not for the nation of Israel, but it was for everyone who would call on the name of the Lord, that they would be grafted into this great salvation and be a part of the family of God that was more numerous than the stars of the sky and more numerous than the sands of the sea. You could not count it. It's all about Jesus, Peter is saying. Peter is saying that the healing was not about him and is not about the guy who got paralyzed. It's pointing to a greater healing that is to come through Jesus if you would just listen. It's not about me, Peter says, and it's not about you either. It's about him. So really quickly, let me land the plane by giving you three truths from Peter's sermon if you want to experience real life change. Here's number one. You need to know the truth. You see, Peter wasn't afraid to tell these guys the truth. Y'all, these were religious leaders who just two months prior killed the Savior of the world. And Peter gets up there with straight boldness and says, you murdered him. It was your sins that nailed him to the cross. But you know why he did that? Because Jesus told him the truth will set you free. So here's the truth. You can't save yourself. It's your sins that nailed him to the cross. You aren't a snowflake. You're a sinner. And I know that's offensive. But y'all, if you don't get there, you're never going to get to the grace. That not only did Jesus have to die for you, he wanted to die for you. That he loved you so much that he put on flesh, stepped off of his throne, and gave you life. Remember this. Truth without grace is so harsh. And grace without truth is just sentimentality. You need both. Y'all, truth is not relative. And we live in a world that is crumbling under the reality of subjective morality that says you just be you. It's fracturing. You need to hear the truth. You can't just be you. You need to be who Jesus made you to be. You need to receive the grace that he has for you, which leads to number two. You need truth, but you also need grace. You need to know grace. See, Peter gives him the benefit of the doubt, doesn't he? He says, hey, you crucified him, but you acted in ignorance. Like God's willing to give you a pass. Y'all, let me just tell you, Jesus already knows your past. He already knows what you've done. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. You realize Romans 5, 8 says that he died for you while you were yet sinners, which means this: he did it knowing your record 
of right and wrong. He doesn't care about your record of right and wrong. He cares that you receive him, repent of it, and come back. See, that's the grace. Grace is that Jesus gave you what you don't deserve, which then leads to the last one. There's still hope. I don't know what you've done. I don't know who you are, but there's still hope because if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. When I was 16, I came to faith. It was one simple verse of the Bible, Matthew 19, 26, that changed my life. Through man, this is impossible, but through God, all things are possible. You know, there's a story I heard recently about some boys and their dad that went on a vacation to Florida. And, you know, they're in Florida and, and the dad says, hey, boys, you can go out back and you can go play, but don't get anywhere near, near that dock. He said that because the two boys didn't know how to swim, but if you have sons, and I've got two of them, you know how this goes, in one ear and out the other. So they start playing this intense game of tag, and they're running around, and one of the boys is running from him, and he runs on the dock, and as the other boy is running to go tag him, he moves out of the way, and he falls into the water. So the son, he runs back to the house, and he grabs the dad. He says, dad, dad, he's in the water. He's in the water. You need to come. You need to come. And the dad runs out, and dad jumps into the lake, and he's frantic, and he doesn't know what to do, and he can't find his son. And then all of a sudden, he kind of feels this voice in his head that says, fill around the pillar. And he does, and, and his son is there. So he grabs him out of the water, and they go back inside, and he gets him right, and he's hugging him. And, you know, in his, in his frustration, he's like, why did you do that? And he says, and why were you clinging to the pylon? And the son says, because I knew you were going to come, Dad. I knew you were going to come. Don't you know that's Jesus? When you cling to him, he's going to rescue. When you're drowning, you can hold on. There's hope that you have a good father. You have a good father who proved his love for you that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. See, he proved his love by the cross and he proved his power by the resurrection. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. Here's my question. Do you have the humility to receive it? Or like the operator of the Titanic, because you're the author and the operator of your life, will you just continue to say, shut up, shut up, I've got this. I'm telling you, the iceberg's ahead. And you don't have to hit it. And neither does your neighbor, and neither does your family, and neither does your coworkers, and neither does this world. If you'll take what you've received and give it away like Peter did, the world will be changed, and so will yours. Can you hear it? That's the question. Father, I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear in all of our lives. What we need more than anything is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Christ, who came to live our perfect life and die our death in our place. God, what we need is you. So Lord, as this moment is ensuing and people are clinging to the pylon. I don't know what's going on, but you do. I pray that you would change lives. I pray that you would open up hearts, that you would give the gospel again. Lord, that we would forsake those things and cling to you and grab onto what is good and right and holy. Father, I pray that we would receive this gift and steward it also to the people around us, to our friends and neighbors, that we wouldn't just be satisfied with what we have, but we would give it away. 
to worship you. King Jesus, you are worthy of it, so we pray all this in your name. Amen.